All right, we are beginning now. Just a brief introduction to Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Knowing God. Well, as the name indicates, the book is about knowing God. Who is God? What is he like? How can we answer the basic questions of life? Why are we here? What is our purpose in life? What should we expect after life? What is the chief end of man? How can we answer the basic questions of life if we don't even know the author of life? We need to know who created us if we're going to know how to live. If we're going to know any of the answers to all the various basic questions or the big questions of life. And that's the basic premise of this book. So write that down. The basic premise of this book is to introduce you to God so that you might know him. And chapter two and three is going to get into what we mean by knowing God. We don't just mean knowing God the way we know how to use a skill saw, but knowing God personally, intimately, relationally, but also knowing him accurately. But the purpose of this book is that you might know God so that in knowing God, you might be more like God and might be more in touch with the reason why you should live and the reason why you get up in the morning every day. Make sense? That's the purpose of the book. Um, Now, the author is J.I. Packer. He was a a student at Oxford University. He actually ran into C.S. Lewis there and knew him for a season. He was the editor of Christianity Today, which used to be a somewhat decent magazine, but is now fairly apostate and woke. And he was the editor, one of the editors, of the ESV Bible, which we, we use occasionally around here, the English Standard Version Bible. So he was a very influential theologian in the 20th century, one of the most influential theologians in the 20th century, J.I. Packer. Now, why would he write a book Introducing Christians to God sounds sounds um, a bit like an insult, honestly. A little bit of a condescension. Why would anyone write a book about knowing God, publish it with a Christian publishing house for Christians? Think about it. What would I mean if I if I wrote a book about how to be a man? And then I gave it to you. Um, What would I be implying? (laughs) That you needed some help. That's right, that you needed some help. And that's right, he did believe, and I think obviously so, that American evangelical Christianity was ignorant. And that in many ways, the God that they thought they knew was not the true God, but was rather a God of our own imaginations. And what law are we violating when we worship and serve a God of our own imaginations? Which law? When we worship a God of our own image that we fashion out of our own imaginations. The commandment two. That's right. Commandment two. (laughs) Commandment two not only condemns the worship of God that you make with your own hands out of wood and clay I remember Adeline used to make little idols out of clay um, from the, the bayou in our backyard. And she would fashion these little little icons. She swears that they were not idols. And um, 
They probably weren't. They probably weren't. But you can also make a God in your own mind, right? Isn't that what Aurelius is doing, right? And everything that we're studying in Stoicism right now. You can make a, a you can image a God in your imagination. Y'all get that? Right? And that's just as much a violation. And what he contends in this book is that the American Christian version or image of God was far from the reality of who God actually is and how he reveals himself in the Bible. Makes sense? And the book was very, very influential, translated into 12 languages, sold over a million copies, etc., Right Now, he does go in, in in the introduction and in chapter 1 to briefly mention, and, and in later chapters as well, uh, two of the main causes for the ignorance of God in American Christianity. And would anyone like to guess what alternate philosophies are prevalent in American Christianity that that leads to Christians not really worshiping and knowing and serving the actual God, but a God of their imaginations. What philosophies are out there which the church is imbibing? There's really, you could probably name just about any, but go ahead. Uh, not wanting to go to church? Or like- well, I don't, I don't mean something so simple and practical. I mean a philosophy. Like we've talked about a lot of philosophies in this class, huh? Arminianism, yes, well, absolutely. He mentions Arminianism, I think, in chapter 1, right? Didn't y'all just finish chapter 1? Yes, Arminianism. And I think we'll get around to talking about why Arminianism is a, a, a synthesis of humanism with the Bible. That's right. So Arminianism, but underneath Arminianism is humanism, right? The trust in man's capabilities, man's ability, man's will, man's reason. I mean, think about it. What does Arminianism teach? It teaches that you have the capacity inside yourself to choose God, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, of course, is not what the Bible teaches, not in the slightest. Any others? Any others? What is the philosophy that teaches that what makes sense to us in our minds is true? Rationalism, that's right. Rationalism, that's very good. What about the the religion or the philosophy that teaches what we can observe with our own eyes, what we can touch, taste, and feel? That's what we can truly and certainly know. Anyone know the name of that? Empiricism, empiricism, right? Now, we, of course, as Christians know that what we can know for certain is what? What God reveals to us in the Scriptures, But empiricism, rationalism, humanism, and all their various um, uh, nasty spawn like Arminianism have led the church down a path of ignorance so that we no longer know the true God of the Bible. We're ignorant of it. And if you don't know the true God, you can't worship the true God, can't serve the true God, right? I mean, what is the purpose of man? Westminster Catechism, number one, the chief end of man is to... And enjoy Him forever. That's right. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What does it mean to glorify God? That's not an easy question, huh? Well, we, we glorify Him when we obey His commandments. Yes, very good. To glorify God is to magnify Him, to shine a light on Him, 
to, to do what you do and say what you say and think what you think and feel what you th- feel with the ultimate purpose of shining a light on, on God, showing the world I live because of God and for God. And of course, obedience and trusting and obeying him is the number one way we, we magnify him and glorify him, put him on, on, on the stage in our life, so to speak. That's what our goal is, is to, to put him on stage, to magnify him, to make him famous. But another part of that is, is that we enjoy God because when we glorify him, when we magnify him and make him the center of our life and show others that he's the center of our life, that makes us the happiest because he is the source of happiness. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we just are living for him. He lives for us. It's, there's a mutuality to it and a reciprocity is covenant. And so we're also enjoying him. Now, how do you enjoy God? That's an even harder question to answer. Can you enjoy God when you eat cookies? Yes, only if you eat cookies with thanksgiving, receiving them as great gifts from God, which, of course, if you're receiving them with thanksgiving from God, you will eat them according to his law with moderation, right? Exactly, that's right. And not gluttony. That's right, that's right. Yeah, we enjoy God by enjoying his creation in his name and with thanksgiving to him, right? Enjoying our friends, our family, cookies, etc. But we can also enjoy God directly in communion with him and fellowship with him. We can be impressed by his deeds and, and happy with the way he's governed our life. And, and we can enjoy communion with him in prayer and in, in worship at church. But, but think about the question here. Can we glorify God and enjoy God forever, which is our purpose, if we don't even know who he is? If we have a false conception of who God is in our mind. If you have an, an imagined God in your mind and you're trying to live to glorify him and enjoy him forever and fulfill your purpose, well, you see what's happening. The ignorance and idolatry is going to lead to you not fulfilling your calling and, and not living according to the purpose that God has given you. So that's why he's writing this book. He's writing the book so that you might know the actual God. Make sense? All right, so... How can we, though, know the actual God? Like, is he going to tell us? How does he know? Has he climbed the ladder up into heaven and he's going to come back down and tell us? How can he know the true and the living God and tell us about it? What's the answer? That's right. Special revelation. This is a term you need to know. I've already taught this to you, but you so you should already know it. But God reveals himself to us in various ways. The two primary ways is natural revelation and special revelation. Sounds like a great quiz question tomorrow. Natural revelation. When you are studying chemistry, that was last class, right? You're studying nature. You're studying reality. You're studying how the world works. But really, ultimately, you're studying, you're studying God through chemistry, right? And, and, and that's how we can come to know some of the attributes of God the characteristics of God through the study of chemistry. When we studied art, when you study art and you see something beautiful or pleasing to you, you can, you can study that and ask the question, why is it pleasing to me? Well, because it has moderation. It, it gives the sense of infinity. It has unity and diversity, right? All these various attributes of God are shining through this artistic work. Nature reveals the attributes of God. Right? The, the invisible attributes of God are shown by the things that he has made, Romans chapter 1. So you can look up at the stars and learn something about God, can't you? Mm-hmm. Right. 
But this book is, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, is, is explaining to us what the Bible says about God, special revelation of God, which includes things we would never be able to figure out with our eyeballs. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Like Marcus Aurelius was not a Christian, but he had eyeballs in his head, unlike a lot of the experts today, right? He knew what a boy was. He knew what a girl was. He knew what up and down were. He knew that two plus two equaled four, right? He wasn't like the Orwellian, Orwellian uh, torturers that would say they'd, eat, they'd have your face eaten off by rats if you didn't say two plus two equals five. He wasn't that deranged and irrational. He was fairly rational. He had eyes in his head. And he learned some things and knew some things, right? But what he didn't have is he didn't have special revelation. And of course, he didn't have the Holy Spirit of God to overcome the effects of sin in the reason, which is why you'll find faults in his book as we study that later in the year. All right? So, but this particular book, Knowing God, is what the Bible says about God. And do you think there's going to be some, some aspects about God that people are not going to like? What are, the, what are the aspects of God that you think that people might not like so much? He doesn't accept, like, LGBTQ. That he is exclusive and that he has a law that is unbending and unwavering and that he is against sodomy. Yes. That's one thing they won't like about God. What else? Anything else? Huh? Killing babies murder. Murder is wrong. Yeah. And murdering a baby because it's not convenient to your career goals is evil, right? And wicked. Yes, they're not going to like that. But we're t- this book is written to Christians, though. I mean, obviously non-Christians read it, too. But this book is written to ignorant Christians. They agree that sodomy is a problem and abortion is a problem. What are some of the attributes of God that the Bible reveals that Christians hate and choose not to believe and refuse to believe and won't go to churches that teach them? I'm sorry? Oh, predestination. I like that. Yes, yes, exactly. Predestination, of course, is just one of the aspects of God's sovereignty. Man does not like the fact that God is sovereign. Now, I will say that I've never met a single Christian that hated the sovereignty of God that also simultaneously actually understood it. Almost always they hate what they think it is, which is some version of fate or fatalism. They don't actually hate what it actually is because they haven't emotionally calmed down enough to listen to it being fully taught. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're more triggered than they are actually absolutely against God's sovereignty. They're more triggered. You know the difference? You know, there's, there are people can freak out about something. They're triggered by it. Ah! But, they, but you're like, hold on now. Let me try to explain this to you. Usually Christians are just triggered by it. But if you're triggered by that and you don't want to hear about it, you're not going to know about it. You're going to be ignorant of God in that particular area. Is that going to affect your worship and your service? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. The sovereignty of God is big. And guess what you're going to find out in this book? That God is sovereign. That's right. Uh, what about the wrath of God? Mm-hmm. That's right. Another thing that uh, folks don't really want to think about. You see, if you, the wrath of God is not palatable. It doesn't exactly build big audiences. If you want to build a big audience, what you want are drummer boys hanging from the ceiling, right? You want pastors uh, riding Harley Davidsons across the stage. Or what are some other things that would really just get the juices flowing, huh? 
You, oh, you want pastors with a deep V, spray tan, for sure, faux hawk. Are faux hawks still in style? <laughs> no, now it's the, uh, now it's the, like, the cool uh, mullet. Yeah. Yeah, the cool mullet. Yeah. No, no, uh, the wrath of God is not very palatable. And so, if it's not palatable, it doesn't build audiences, and so preachers shy away from it, and they don't really like it, it's distasteful, that means people are not going to know about it. So they're not going to know God as well as they should know God. And if you don't know God as well as you should, then what? Then you're not worshiping the true God. You're worshiping, to some degree, a figment of your own imagination. You understand what I mean? So that's what's very interesting about this book. Um, the book is fairly based. You don't know what that is. That's a new term. That term wasn't even around when this book was written. But what does it mean to be based? Or what's an example of being based? Anybody? I love being based. It's my my favorite tactic. Not accepting that other people have like different opinions. Not. Yeah, I suppose you 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 simply say something, and assume it to be true, and the the thought that anyone else would be triggered by it just doesn't even come into your mind. <laughs> It's not that you don't care. It's that you are you're assuming the center. You're like, well, yes, of course, God hates uh, sodomy. Like, oh, did you think that wasn't? It's based just says these things because and assumes things are true. I like that because that's what this book is like. He just he tells you what God is like, and um, and I think a lot of Christians when they read this book for the first time, not you guys because you've been in this for a while, but. A lot of Christians, when they read this book for the first time, are very surprised to find out what the Bible says about the actual nature and qualities and identity of God. But that's good. You need to know. Uh, what do you want? Don't you want to know what God says about Himself, mm-hmm. not what you feel like He should be? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're not God, right? You don't get to be God. So, well, I don't like that God's like that. That's shut up. <laughs> Nobody cares. You're not God. You shouldn't even say things like that. Don't put him on the stand and judge him. He's God. Make sense? All right. This is a book for travelers. Y'all remember that analogy? Travelers versus balconiers, which I had to rewind my audiobook quite a few times because I thought he was talking about falconiers. You know, the people that train falcons to like take out drones or whatever these days. You know what a falconier is, right? Yeah. But he was saying balconier, balconier. Because I listened to it on audio. I read it a long time ago, but I'm listening to it again to go along with you guys. But a balconier is someone who stands up on a balcony and looks out over a large piece of ground. And the questions that they have are going to be a little bit more big picture, a little more theoretical, right? They're not actually down there having to live with it. So if you're a dude, a traveler, and you have to make it across a marsh versus a guy standing on a balcony drinking a sweet tea looking out over a marsh, you're going to have different questions, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Right? The guy in the marsh, what does he mainly want to know? How do I get out of this? How do I cross it, right? What are the dangers that I should expect in, in you know, any moment from now? And uh, the guy on the balcony, he wants to know, like, you know, perhaps you know, the, the precipitation rates in the, mar- in the marsh as composed to the, the precipitation rates of a semi-arid climate. He's in a more theoretical things. And this is a book for travelers. This is a book for 
explaining to Christians how to get out of the marsh and the dangers you're going to face. It's a book for travelers. Practical book. Um, it's good that we have balconiers. It's good to ask big questions. Why do we have pain in this world? How do we solve the problem of pain that God is sovereign and loving and yet there is pain in this world? That's what balconiers ask. But a traveler just wants to know how do I deal with this pain, right? How do I glorify God through this suffering and pain? That's the kind of book this is. The second thing we learn in chapter one is why he wrote it. And I already said this. He wrote it because of the humanism, the rationalism, the skepticism, and because of that, the ignorance of the modern evangelical church. And he was concerned that they simply were worshiping and serving, at least to some degree, a figment of their own imaginations and not the true and living God, which is definitely going to hurt you when you're trying to cross a marsh. Got it? All right, that's it for today.